Hey everyone, this is Sina with another episode of Into the Bytecode. My guest today is Vitalik Buterin, the creator of Ethereum. His second time on the podcast after joining me for the very first episode with Carl Florsch. So in this conversation, we talked about a whole bunch of things, including micro prediction markets and how they can be used for content moderation, how the world is becoming a more complex place with more powerful forces that interact with each other and, and how we can understand what's happening. AI as a technology and its many ramifications, brain computer interfaces, and we even got into some linguistics and how you can say the word fish in Klingon. I really enjoyed this and I hope you do too. And with that, I'll leave you to it. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Optimism. The Optimism Collective is building the open source modular software project known as the OP Stack, which allows developers to run layer two blockchains while also addressing key governance and economic challenges in the wider ecosystem. Optimism's also leading decentralized grants experiments like retroactive public goods funding, which recently granted 10 million OP to projects across developer tooling, infrastructure, and education. More recently, they had a major milestone by adding Coinbase's blockchain base to also be governed by Optimism governance and also contribute a portion of their sequencer revenues back to the collective. I've known the Optimism team for many years and know that they're dedicated to both scaling Ethereum and extending its ability to build better economic structures. So if you're interested in learning more, whether you want to build something new or you want to apply for grant funding, then I encourage you to check out Optimism at optimism.io. I thought um, I would start with a with a line that you had in one of your recent blog posts that prediction markets are the holy grail epistemic technology, mm. uh, and that you felt this for some time. So, yeah, what what do you mean by that? Mm. So the way that I think a lot of people naturally think about prediction markets is they uh, think about people betting on major events and uh, large numbers of people betting on a relatively small number of events over a yeah, fairly large time scale, right? Uh, so you might be betting on the outcome of a sports game. You might be betting on the outcome of an election. You might be betting on whether or not LK99 is real. Uh, and like these are all, um, you know, like good prediction market use cases. I mean, the, the, the sports betting, I think, is like just a, like a fun thing, but... Uh, you know, sometimes, like, yeah, you know, you need the fun things to create the network effect for the yeah, super socially valuable things. Um, but, uh, you know, like Robin Hansen, for example, I mean, except for a long time, supported Futarchy, where you'd have a market uh, that where, you know, like, for example, you'd uh, simultaneously trade a company's shares conditional on uh, if they hire this person as a CEO versus if they hire this other person as a CEO. And then you'd see which uh, shares uh, float higher, and then uh, you'd use that. Uh, in order to decide who to hire the CEO, and that you could uh, imagine like that process even just uh, being automated, and that would just be yeah, Futarchy as a direct form of governance. Uh, yeah. So yeah, so like the, those kinds of ideas are like how we traditionally think about prediction markets, right? But maybe think, maybe uh, taking maybe taking a quick tangent on this idea of Futarchy because mm. it's so sci-fi mm. and cool. Has it been mm. experimented with anywhere? Mm. 
I'm trying to think. I mean, I I feel like the answer is not really because uh, in order to even have those kinds of um, prediction markets, like you you want to get the basics working first, right? It's like conditional prediction markets that feed directly to decisions are stage two prediction markets working at all at a, at scale or stage one. Um, but yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting that like uh, it's like you know you call the space. Uh, a kind of science fiction, and uh, you know, to me, I'm kind of uh, sort of you know quickly yeah, running through this whole thing as though it's uh, old. News. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, like no uh, big deal. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. But first, first you need to run. First you need to walk. Then you need to run. But it, it does make me think, especially. Um, it would almost be cool to have. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about prediction markets, but even the idea of futarchy, almost playing with it in more low stakes environments of like, say, an individual deciding what they're going to do next and kind of doing it as a choose your own adventure type thing where people are betting on the different paths. Um, I don't know, but but we digress. Right. Uh, so this is uh, where we get to uh, actually yeah, not a digression at all like my yeah, core case for why I think prediction markets are a much uh, larger category than uh, what people have been thinking which is that there is a huge space of uh, micro prediction markets that could actually be yeah, like all kinds of uh, really powerful mechanisms right um, so I could give one example um, let's take uh, community notes on uh, Twitter right um, so uh, you know, like very powerful mechanism. I wrote a blog post on it. Um, you know, like anyone can uh, suggest a uh, note for a tweet, and then there is this voting mechanism where people vote on notes, and it's not even selecting the most power popular note. It's selecting uh, notes that are consistently popular for people from you know, like both sides of like major political divides, um, and it's sort of a really nice. And I think people generally agree that it's nice. But the main criticism of it I've, that I've seen is basically that it, these notes do not appear fast enough, right? It's uh, like, uh, you know, like some, um, you know, it, some random explosion happens and uh, someone uh, makes a uh, tweet uh, saying, um, you know, look, you know, look at these three pixels over here. The blue party did it. And um, you know, it turns out that that's total fake news. And like within a couple of days, you know, you know that it was a like actually the the purple party that did it. Uh, but uh, like in the meantime, it's always it's like, the purple the, party, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is, yeah. Um, you know, it, but you know, during those two days, it's like you know the meme spreads and uh, people have uh, you know like some uh, like very yeah, preformed opinions on the situation. Um, and the uh, the question is like, can you even make community notes appear faster? And I think uh, like the default uh, challenge here, right, is like democratic mechanisms are slow, right? Like elections are slow. Like it takes uh, a long time for lots of people to look at something, um, especially if people are less sophisticated. Like you don't want to press people to try to uh, decide anything quickly. Um, so. One natural idea that comes up is like, well, what if you just have a prediction market on whether or not you know uh, some post is going to have a note that, either if it's going to have a note at all, um, or if it's going to have a note that has like some particular set of contents, right? And then the yeah, idea is basically that you're essentially introducing a second kind of voting, and except 
that kind of voting is kind of incentivized in the sense that uh, like you get rewarded if your immediate vote matches the final outcome and you get penalized if uh, your immediate vote goes uh, against the final outcome. Um, and so over time that would uh, basically yeah, kind of concentrate uh, voting power in the hands of people that are actually good at uh, approximating the final outcome. Um, so that's like one example of a yeah, potential micro prediction market use case. Um, in, I, yeah, I mean, I've talked about this, I think, a couple of times in the context of like moderation and social for like decentralized social media sites. Like, uh, it, basically, the idea would be that like you have some like DAO that's like some final panel of judges, and like there could be some inefficient thing of like 15 or like 100 people or whatever, but then you have kind of prediction markets uh, leading up to that or like some kind of challenge game leading up to that right where like basically yeah you know like you can like go and flag something but then if you're flagging go either goes uh, against the final decision um or it just goes against too many other people's later flags and uh, and no one else is supporting you and you give up then like you get penalized but then if it goes along with the final decision then it gets rewarded right and yeah like That's to me super these are all yeah, like these are all prediction market uh, use cases, right? Um, there's even ones within the crypto space, like, you know, is this URL a scam, right? Like that's like the simplest thing that would benefit mass uh, a massive number of people, right? Like uh, when a yeah, scam starts, like I think uh, there was, uh, you know, like a pretty yeah, fun one this morning where someone actually managed to make like 30 seconds of uh, like deep fake audio and video of myself, which is like, like eventually I was able to do like, like points to specific things that show that it's not me, but I could totally see how someone who's only heard me like two or three times uh, would uh, totally yeah, not catch on to that. And it started spreading around that it was like one of those fake Starkware airdrops. And like the challenge with these things is that like, you know, even if they get community noted in like 12 hours, like lots can happen within late. those 12 hours. Yeah, exactly. So like it's uh, th that exact same kind of use case, right? So. Like those are just ways in which like micro prediction markets just like map onto huge numbers of functions that would be yeah, you know, like really yeah, valuable for us in terms of uh, you know, like preventing scams, preventing misinformation, giving people a faster access to higher quality information and uh, like all of these things that we really care about. Do you think this is possible to build today or do you kind of, do you see any edge cases or pieces of this idea that, that kind of have to be fleshed out more? Um, I think, uh, I mean, the idea is kind of just uh, like there for the taking the uh, thing that's uh, not built as like basically one, I um, you know, like actual user interfaces and like actually, yeah, building up the ecosystem of people actually participating in these kinds of things. Or I think realistically in a lot of um, micro use cases, it won't even be people, it would be AIs participating in these things. Um, and uh, like there's some interesting experiments uh, happening there, right? So uh, Martin Koppelman, uh, I think, uh, has been I mean, doing a lot of stuff around like AIs particip uh, participating in uh, Omen. Um, and that was actually one of the things that I yeah, links to in my yeah, latest blog post. Um, and the, yeah, 
other uh, piece, of course, is that blockchains have to be scalable enough, right? And I think this has just been the kind of big deal breaker that's prevented a lot of super interesting blockchain applications from happening for such uh, an insanely long time, right? This was uh, also when I talked about in like my yeah, other post on uh, making Ethereum cypherpunk again, right? Basically, my thesis that uh, you know the the reason why yeah, the DGN stuff dominates so much is because uh, when transaction fees go up to like eighty dollars, then uh, like a DGN thing is uh, the only thing that makes sense to build. Um, but uh, you know, fees go down to like zero point eight cents, then like suddenly all of the cool stuff just uh, starts totally making sense again. Um, yeah, so, yeah, basically I think, uh, you know, 2023 and 2024 were just, uh, you know, like on this arc of uh, making massive progress on uh, layer two scaling. Um, you know, we saw Arbitrum uh, hit stage one last year and uh, lots of uh, rollups are planning to hit stage one or stage two um, this year. So I'm, uh, yeah, excited about us like actually turning the corner on that. For sure, it's a whole new space of applications that's possible. So maybe, maybe um, one kind of interesting prompt is that 2024 is also an interesting year because it's a year of elections, right? Um, not only in the U.S. but elsewhere in the world. Uh, Taiwan just had their election. India is having theirs, and you know, if if the last kind of election cycle is any any kind of example on this, it's it's going to be total chaos in the online information environment that we live in, right? And and this time around, the big difference is that AI's ha AI has matured to the point where you can have very kind of uh, closely resembling audio or video of someone to the point where it's hard to tell who they are. So it's it's kind of interesting that this is also coinciding with this time that crypto also has this opportunity with layer twos to build new things. I do wonder if kind of decentralized social networks as a whole also have a role to play, given the fact that there's, you know, a, pu a public key infrastructure baked into it uh, that's, that's legible to everyone yeah. on the outside. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that all have synergies with each other, right? So, uh, Decentralized uh, social networks, absolutely. Like, I think it's also been amazing to see, like, how much, um, you know, Farcaster has been uh, taking off also. I mean, like, how Lens has been uh, doing recently as well. It's, uh, like, amazing that we're starting to see a uh, crypto application that, uh, you know, people actually use, right? And, like, that is uh, not just uh, something finance-related. Like, it's uh, something that I think people have wanted for a really long time. Um, but uh, it's like actually happening, and like it's interesting. You can see, yeah, you know, like people on uh, Twitter, like sometimes even having a, a hard time comprehending it uh, because uh, you know, like when I yeah, co commented on Farcaster uh, yesterday, yeah, some uh, people uh, were replying things like, "Oh wow, you know, Vitalik says, I um, you know, like Farcaster is the narrative. You know, like, does this mean I need to buy DGen tokens?" Like. Uh, <laughs> like well, what's the it's like you know the immediate interface uh, to the yeah to the narrative is like okay you know like how do i align my bag with the thing and right. of course that's like not the whole point right the point of farcaster is like it's a social network you use it and you post on it and uh you know you uh yell at people on it hopefully nicely um 
but uh, I saw I saw Dan reply to some folks who were saying when token on Farcaster and saying that mm. if you say this, you're going to get nerfed and like deprioritized by the algorithm. <laughs> and it's it's kind of a good way I feel that they can be the benevolent dictator right now and kind of set good cultural norms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if uh, culture actually manages to stick like two or four years in the future. Um, yeah, yeah. So you were but, saying there's uh, a few things that come together, mm -hmm. right? So. We talked about micro-prediction markets, talked about decentralized social, and I, mean, I feel like I've kind of talked about the micro-prediction use cases within decentralized social already. Um, I've, uh, I mean, it's interesting because these are, these are things that people have been already experimenting with to some extent. Like there have been like ideas around social net, crypto social networks where you can like make bets on like people's uh, long form posts. So, like I think. Even a bunch of the Chinese ones tried to do that like five years ago. Um, but, uh, you know, this could easily be one of those things that like doesn't succeed until it does. Then the third one is uh, like all of the ZK identity stuff, right? Uh, so ZooPass um, that also started at Zuzulu and uh, that whole uh, ecosystem. Um, and um, you know, ZooPass is increasingly growing into a yeah, fully fledged product. Um, yeah, so that's been uh, good to uh, good to see, and I mean, I think the synergy there is like uh, you know you have your like a crypto asset wallet, but then you also need your identity wallet that like stores um, you know things like attestations and uh, any kinds of like claims about yourself that are off chain, and you can make proofs that go um, over a whole bunch of these different claims and that like prove some particular statement about you without um, revealing any other information. Um, so yeah, there's a, like that's also really powerful and that's something that like decentralized social networks could plug into. Um, another natural use case of this is airdrops, right? Because uh, like the thing that every airdropper wants is they want the airdrop to like one, people who are actually part of their community and two, people who are likely to like actually, yeah, you know, like hold on to and care about the token and not just like dump it when they yeah, discover it three months later um, on uh, you know, like scrolling through like Rabby or whatever, right? Um, so the um, um, idea here would be that like instead of doing, you know, like per address airdrops or like doing very proprietary kind of algorithms to try to like weed out, you know, like who... To obfuscate uh, what versus, you're doing, yeah. Exactly. It's like, you know, the proprietary algorithms that are like obviously yeah, justified by the need to like prevent a, a kind of like airdrop farming kind of abuse. But at the same time, they're just like massive opportunities for the team or like any rogue employees to make massive hidden pre-mines. Uh, but uh, yeah, so instead you uh, airdrop to people who, let's say, yeah, have at least five zoo stamps in a particular category, right? Um, or you... Uh, Airdrop to people um, who, uh, you know, like attended Def Connect or attended Zuzulu or like have a Git Gitcoin passport score of at least zero point three or whatever, and you do all this while preserving privacy. Um, so I think that stuff is uh, super interesting as well, um, and it feels like the technology is like slowly getting to the point where we're like right at the cusp of uh, being able to do it. I'm actually really hoping to see yeah, some uh, like zoo gated uh, airdrops uh, start to happen because I like 
I do think that airdrops can be good oh, at like, boy. you know, like <laughs> motivating people to like actually, yeah, you know, like learn and go through complicated stuff when um, other things don't, right? And so, uh, yeah, you know, like if, if I, we suddenly, yeah, I mean, like educate a large number of people of like, oh, you know, you have a zero knowledge proof wallet now. Wow. And then, you know, that's something that can start getting used in a whole bunch of other contexts. Um, yeah, so let's see. Yeah, we went through um, micro predictions, uh, went th went, um, also went through um, having a yeah, more decentralized alternative to USDT on Tron, also went through crypto social, also went through ZK. Um, enterprise applications, um, or like, I guess the category here that I'm, I, I have in mind is uh, like, things that in today's world are done centralized, but where you could add like about 20% decentralization to them. And like that actually gives very useful guarantees to users, right? Um, so actually, yeah, the easiest example of this uh, to give is actually not even things in the traditional kind of categories that people have been exploring for 10 years, like healthcare or supply chain or whatever, but something that's uh, very close to our hearts, which is uh, proof of solvency for exchanges, right? Like if you're a crypto exchange, then you know you can uh, like z zero knowledge prove that your d database is being updated, um, you know, correctly, and that you actually have a an underlying coin for every coin of uh, users' balances, right? Like this is your blog being... post titled "How to Have Safe Sex." Exactly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Very proof memorable. of uh, being uh, of uh, not being FTX. Proof of not being Mt. Gox. Um, yeah. so, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think the interesting thing is if you like analyze what it actually means to like do ZK Synarch based proof of solvency, you realize that like it's actually technologically speaking, basically the exact same thing as a Validium, right? It's a, uh, it's a root hash on chain where the root hash is only allowed to be updated based on a ZK Snark that like uh, satisfies certain rules. And I think like that's interesting, right? Because it shows that there like actually is a continuum there. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, exchanges uh, doing proof of solvency is number one. Number two is um, uh, games. Uh, so we already saw the Dark Forest game, right, about a, a few years ago. Um, actually, yeah, one of the reasons why I really respect uh, Brian Gu and his uh, team is that, like, the, the critique that I gave uh, yesterday of, uh, like, some of the existing sort of, quote, social fi things, which is, like, a term that I, yeah, totally hate, right? Because it's like, oh, you know, it, it, like, okay, you know, we have this amazing opportunity to do crypto social. Well, what's the social problem you want to solve in crypto? Well, gee, not enough speculation. Uh, but, uh, you know, any, but, uh, but aside from, uh, but the critique I gave is like, uh, it's similar to GameFi, where the thing that fails is uh, the game, uh, like people use financial speculation as a substitute for fun. And like, that's what I feel like, I mean, like Axel Infinity and like a lot of the others uh, basically yeah, ended up stumbling into doing. And uh, people probably even thought that they were genuinely having fun while all of the tokens and, you know, and everything was going up in 2021. But then when prices uh, started going down, it just became a ghost town. And uh, like, at least uh, I, mean, I haven't uh, dug into this in a lot of uh, detail, but if that chart was correct, then um, you know, like similar things for happening with Friendstack. Um, so basically, yeah, you know, like you have to actually yeah, use the blockchain, but ha make sure that the game is fun in a way that's like not dependent on 
the uh, token dynamics going in one direction. And mm -hmm. the Dark Forest game from 2020 actually does a super amazing job of that, right? Like, it's not a financialized mm -hmm. game, but it is a blockchain game. And, of course, the same guys did uh, Frog Crypto at Def Connect, which I think was also similar and actually fun mm -hmm. game in the same spirit. Yeah, so, like, blockchain games where, like, you have uh, on-chain proofs of state, and that makes it easy for you to, you know, like, provably export assets from uh, one server, potentially import them to another server and do really interesting things there. I uh, really uh, support that kind of thing. And then from there, you can start going into just, like, various business applications, at which point I think uh, the big, like, value unlock that people are looking for is... Uh, that you know, if you can make these ironclad proofs that like you have some kind of object in progress going through some kind of like enterprise system, like you could even like a package in transit, some products in the process of being manufactured or whatever, then like you could use that as collateral, and that could make it cheaper to take out loans, which I think is like super interesting too. Um, and then, of course, finally, yeah, I mean, like fifth category is DAOs. And, uh, you know, like we've been seeing a proliferation of DAOs, and I think people starting to get smarter and smarter on governance mechanisms. Um, so, uh, yeah, wow, I think uh, we just uh, went through all five categories that I yeah, described in my other post of, uh, like, what in the Ethereum application ex ecosystem excites me from, like, back in uh, December 2022. So I think it's, like, you know, it's good to see that that stuff has uh, actually remained stable for a year, right? Yeah, yeah, that, but, yeah. That uh, was a very comprehensive tour. Yeah, it's just, uh, but it's nice, right? It feels like it's uh, the same kinds of uh, things, but it's uh, those, all of those things feel so much more mature. Yeah, totally. We've made a lot of progress. So maybe, maybe um, taking the conversation one layer deeper and thinking about why these things actually matter ultimately why 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 it's helpful to build these sorts of applications and mechanisms and i i found one concept that you've talked about recently that the world is becoming more of a dense jungle to be to be interesting um what do you mean by that mm, right the dense jungle um I think uh, the uh, the dense jungle was this uh, metaphor I uh, yeah, first introduced in my uh, post, actually, at the, all the way back at the end of 2020, where we talk about um, how there's uh, all of these uh, like social actors that are become like becoming more and uh, more powerful, um, and in a world whose size is still staying the same, and so it feels like we're entering this uh, environment where, um, you know, remember like before, um, like 15 years ago in the US, like the, and I think Canada too, um, you know, the kind of I'm political debates. I'm also for what it's worth. Indeed. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, like basically, yeah, you know, the political debate, I think, in uh, both of those lands and, and actually probably the entire Ang like Anglosphere and Europe as well was like one uh, part of the uh, spectrum was afraid of big government and the other part of the spectrum was afraid of big business and it feels like the outcome of uh, those that is that 15 years down the line actually both of those are probably more powerful than they were 15 years ago and like i'm not i'm not saying that that's good and i'm not even saying that that's uh, a kind of you know non-terrifying but like it feels like it's the reality right and like it feels like lots of other things are getting bigger at the same time too right like uh 
like mobs are, um, you know, getting uh, more more powerful. Um, even like cryptography is also getting more powerful. Um, the uh, you know AI is also getting more powerful, right? And uh, basically, the point that I made a few years ago was like, if your criterion of a good future is like a big thing that you dislike uh, being beaten down or going away, then you know you probably feel like you've lost. But if your criterion for success was uh, a uh, a new thing that you like being introduced, then like you probably feel like you've won, right? And I think this is even um, you know true in the cypherpunk space, right? Where like on the one hand uh, you know we definitely don't have uh, crypto anarchy, but on the other hand it's like uh, you know we have amazing privacy preserving technology. We have uh, you know zero knowledge proofs more powerful than most people could have even dreamed of. Um, you know like we actually have private keys in each person's um, hands on a, on a massive scale. Look, we have all of these different things, right? And it's, uh, and, and so if you look at it from the yeah, perspective of like, well, what, ki what kinds of things did we gain? Like, well, it turns out, you know, we actually gained a lot, right? And it's this paradoxical kind of uh, situation where you just have uh, like all of these uh, really powerful forces that are simultaneously progressing and uh, expanding themselves. And when that happens, then like, what you basically have is you have these uh, like really powerful things that are pushing up against each other more and more. And I feel like this uh, like interplay dynamic uh, between uh, uh, these uh, different forces is going to be one of the defining trends of the 21st century. Hmm. Hmm. So does this imply then to to understand the world you you know whereas before you needed to understand maybe like a couple or a handful of big forces that were mm. shaping the future now you have mm. to have a more cross-sectional perspective on things? Mm. I think that's uh, definitely absolutely a big part of it. Um, I think uh, yeah you have to have a cross-sectional perspective on uh, pretty much uh, any everything at this point. Into the Bytecode is sponsored by Privy. One of the biggest problems we're grappling with as builders working on crypto-enabled applications is how to make the right trade-offs between user experience on the one hand and security and privacy on the other hand. How do we promote self-custody and ownership while letting the application shine rather than the crypto behind it? So Privy plays an important role here. They provide simple onboarding so anyone can connect to your app easily by allowing them to sign in with an existing wallet or by making it easy for you to provision a new self-custodial wallet for them, linking to social logins like Google, Twitter, or Discord. I personally have faith in Privy because of the team. Henry Stern, who's one of the co-founders, was previously on an episode of this podcast, so you can listen to that conversation for more of a deep dive. And he and his partner, Asta Lee, have been thinking about data privacy and security for a long, long time. And you can see this in the level of thought they're putting into the product. So if you're working on a new product and thinking about how to reach a wider group of users without compromising on either user experience or privacy and security, then I encourage you to check out Privy at privy.io. What, what to you are the big are the big forces that are shaping the world right now? Like if someone was like, I have uh, I have a, you know, some period of time and I and I want to get to a point where I understand what hap what's happening. Um, what would you recommend that they look into? 
like the the big for the like the big trends uh, that are yeah. uh, kind of guiding the world in general. Um, yes. Yeah, I mean, I can. I think there is a few. Uh, so I think uh, the big political mega trend is uh, probably the uh, collapse of a uh, a kind of a, con- a condition of uh, relative peace that uh, existed to a great extent probably in the ni- in the uh, 1990s and to a uh, lesser extent since um, around. Uh, 1945, and I think uh, these are, this is a, a kind of order that uh, you know we've all basically taken for granted as and uh, kind of treated as being uh, like permanent, and even treated um, you know the direction of it continuing to improve as being permanent. Uh, but uh, over the last decade or so, we've basically seen it collapse. Um, and I mean, I think uh, there's a lot of different. Ex- uh, explanations uh, for this but i think like ultimately yeah you know like in any one of these orders is uh, going to be finite because uh, like the pressures that uh, caused it to come into existence are no longer there um lots of other aspects of uh, the world are changing um the yeah the people who even remember the yeah events that motivated the yeah creation of uh, uh, of the order are either uh, retiring or dying out um and uh, you know, we're seeing the, an, an era of uh, instability in all kinds of ways, right? Like both within individual countries um, and, uh, of course, uh, between countries as well. Um, and, uh, and, like, it feels like the uh, environment is uh, kind of getting more tense and, um, you know, like more competitive and uh, hostile in a lot of ways. And, like, one way to interpret this is to interpret this as some kind of malignant new thing, right? But the other way to interpret it is, like, well, this is actually how history has been all along, and we're just uh, exiting a uh, period of, like, actually, uh, you know, like a, a relatively unusual amount of calm, which is pro- actually the uh, interpretation that I'm more sympathetic to. Um, then the second uh, major trend is the... Uh, um, rapid growth of technology, right? And I think, uh, like, crypto is a big part of that. Um, AI is uh, absolutely a uh, big part of that. Um, biotech is uh, starting to be a uh, big part of that. Um, also, um, you know, like various kinds of hard tech, like uh, solar panels, uh, for example, right? Um, like, it feels like we're finally on the... like uh, uh, We're on the cusp of this uh, transition in climate change, right, where... Um, like, I feel like 20 years ago when technology was worse, but political cooperation was better, there was a lot of idealism of like, oh, you know, what if we could all agree to abandon the big cars and the big houses and uh, live uh, simpler lives for, you know, for the sake of our shared earth. And, uh, you know, these days it's like, well, yeah, you know, like even if uh, all of the hippies uh, do that, all of the non-hippies won't. And it turns out that the non-hippies alone are like enough to potentially cook the planet. Um, and so... Uh, it's uh, and, and at the same time, like solar panels are getting to the points where they're like actually cheaper than um, you know, like a lot of the non-renewables that uh, you know like we uh, hate for very good reasons. I um, you know, like things like uh, coal and so forth. Uh, and, and so, uh, like that's uh, creating this perspective shift, right? Where like I think uh, twenty years ago, um, you know, the the conversation was much more kind of climate, uh, you know, climate as religion and, uh, you know, like sort of personal, um, you know, like penance and, uh, you know, like worry about your footprints and all of those things. Um, and uh, these days there is a larger share of the conversation that's on climate tech and, uh, you know, like the, yeah, 
amazing, amazing, really smart uh, 19 year olds from India that I yeah, met at the yeah, Emergent Venture Summit uh, back in uh, August uh, that were um, like basically yeah, conver you know, converting CO2 into bricks um, and uh, you know, like people uh, developing amazing solar panels and developing batteries and so forth. So like that's, I think, one of those interesting examples where kind of, you know, the two forces go in the same direction. Um, mm -hmm. AI is, I think, uh, AI is massively changing a lot of things, right? Um, and uh, I mean, I feel like it's having a, a couple of uh, different effects. Like one of them, obviously, is that it's uh, re increasing the set of things that can be done with uh, no human effort at all. Um, but then... The other thing that it's doing is that for the tasks where you still need some level of human involvement, it's uh, expanding the scope of things that a, a human can do. It's also really changing and resetting the kind of expertise that you need. Um, and uh, like it's really, yeah, like I think, uh, like changing around a lot of the kind of rankings of uh, like what kinds of uh, skills are important to have and what kinds of skills are less important to have. I could give a concrete example. Um, so I've been using AIs to help you with programming a lot, right? And they're amazing. And there's a lot of things that they can help me code like five times faster. Um, but the, th the one place where AI is uh, really, really no uh, noticeable and how helpful it is, is in, in like introducing me to new frameworks, right? So things that are not intellectually complicated, but where there is like specific systems that you, where you have to code in a particular way to interact with them. And where like many thousands of developers have done it before, but I just have no idea how, right? So like making a Chrome extension, for example, or like making an Android app, right? Like these are all things that just uh, become vastly yeah, easier and just more accessible to people. Um, and uh, it's uh, you know like in my power to just like go do it as a, a a day project when that was totally not true before. Um, the time that you spend pr um, programming, I think before for me programming was always eighty percent debugging, but now programming is like ninety five percent debugging. Um, and actually, drawing is the same thing, right? So like I've used AI to draw a whole bunch, uh, and if you want to draw with the objective of dazzling people, that you can generally put a prompt into stable diffusion or dolly or whatever and get it right on the first try, right? But if your job is to draw something specific that you need for some purpose, then generally you have to do like 10 rounds of, of uh, you know, like telling it to draw in a painting, telling it to edit a particular corner, telling it to make the cat 50% larger, telling it that like, no, 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 the cat has four legs and not five. Um, and, and just like doing all kinds of, uh, you know, like multiple rounds of modifications. And uh, yeah, so like the, the kind of work that's being done, it changes a lot. Um, also, I think uh, it makes a lot of things more accessible actually, right? Like I think uh, there was a fear for a while that like AI would, uh, you know, like empower the elites at the, uh, much more than it empowers like regular people. And in some ways, it actually kind of feels like the opposite is the true, right? Actually, this is something that I think uh, Noah Smith uh, wrote about. I think, uh, I forget the name of the post, right? But it was something about like, you know, the age of the normies coming back or something. Um, and uh, his point is basically that like, there's actually even like papers that show that uh, AI has, uh, AI's ability to increase people's productivity, is, like the percentage increase is significantly greater for amateurs than it is for experts, right? 
And like, that's also the sort of thing that I noticed, right? It's like, uh, you know, like it improved my ability to create a, you know, like browser extensions by a factor of five. But if you're like a browser extension expert, then it might improve it by a factor of like 1.1, right? Um, so that's like interesting. Um, and um, I think one of the interesting things is that one uh, kind of personality trait that I think becomes more important in this era is agency, right? Like just the, yeah, it's like the willingness to get off your butt and do something. Um, and uh, like, I think the way that a lot of people are going to fail is they're going to be in the mindset where like things feel closed off to them uh, because that's like, it's an area that they haven't even looked into before and they expect that it's going to be super hard, but like, they haven't even updated to the fact that like, well, no, you know, with uh, LLM suddenly it's a lot less hard. And uh, if you can just make that mental switch in your head, then you know, your ability to operate in the new world is probably gonna like, increase quite significantly just from that alone. Um, so, so true. Yeah, yeah. So those are just, uh, you know, like random uh, shifts that uh, AI is making. Yeah. Um, another thing that I totally did not predict and that I think nobody predicted is how it's like, it's replacing uh, the doctors before the plumbers, right? Like. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or I guess like even a better analogy might be White replacing the lawyers before the, pl the plumbers, yeah. right? Exactly. It's uh, like the internet work gets replaced way before physical work, which is just like super crazy and uh, interesting to see. I mean, I think uh, from a yeah, kind of worrying about society perspective, I think that's like a massive, uh, you know, like good. Like it's okay, you know, like this, uh, this big scare that we had about... Uh, you know, the yeah, AI making uh, the most vulnerable people um, unemployable is, uh, you know, like fortunately, yeah, you know, like not happening for a while. And uh, the people that AI hits first are the people that are in a better position to handle it. Um, so, but, um, you know, like at the same time, eventually, yeah, AI is going to uh, come for everything. And uh, that's something that I think, uh, like we yeah, do really need to, uh, need to start being prepared for. So, you know, there's, and then, and the other big one, of course, is like how AI intersects with, uh, you know, like, uh, like topics like trust, right? Uh, so, uh, like we talked earlier about deep fakes, right? And uh, how, uh, you know, you can't trust someone's voice or someone's uh, video anymore. And like there were some pretty uh, uh, serious uh, cases of uh, this too. Like I, uh, I saw yesterday there was a uh, report of... Uh, Someone, I think, uh, in Hong Kong who uh, lost uh, 25 million because someone impersonated a bunch of people, including the CEO on, or, or, or the CFO on a video call. And like, I, uh, I asked that to my security friends and uh, the security friends basically said like, well, no, you know, that's a really uh, exceptional uh, situation because there, there were just like multiple total um, OPSEC fails there that like any reasonable enterprise would have had multiple layers of protection against. Um, but, uh, you know, at the same time, right, like it shows how, uh, you know, like people who have been uh, slacking off in, on security and feeling safe slacking off, uh, you know, can't really uh, slack off any longer. And at the same time, of course, this is where crypto might come in because uh, we have many more of these uh, kind of digital attestation based uh, technologies for uh, figuring out uh, what it is that we're actually yeah, trusting, right? So, yeah, so I'll just like, a lot of these uh, interesting shifts that, that are happening from uh, in all kinds of different sectors. I think uh, right now, obviously, yeah, AI is pulling ahead and it's uh, you know, probably yeah, something like half of the yeah, story, but uh, both uh, 
you know, crypto and hard tech and uh, bio and uh, all of uh, the, these things matter a lot too. And uh, yeah, I mean, the world is just going to continue, like, you know, like flipping itself over in interesting ways pretty much uh, once a decade from here on all the way up until the singularity. <laughs> and, and when is the singularity? Um, yeah, so my 95% yeah, confidence interval is uh, 2030 to 2200. Um, okay, that's actually, quite a wide yeah, range. <laughs> it is, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, actually, yeah, a year ago was, I think, 2027 to 2200. But uh, over the past year, AI progress actually has been significantly slower than uh, I had been expecting. So I feel like I've like adjusted, uh, you know, like away the, yeah, the earlier side of my yeah, distribution somewhat. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's just so hard to predict these things ahead of time, right? Um, I can, uh, I mean, give like some example reasons of like why we should think this, right? I mean, I think like just uh, going very far off uh, kind of intuitively, right? Think about the difference between the ENIAC, right? The very first computer that came out in the late 1940s and today, where we literally have computers embedded in watches, computers embedded in like random $10 electronics, computers embedded everywhere. And then imagine that entire trend progressing another uh, 70 years, right? Or think about like AI uh, progressing from where it was like 30 years ago, where it was a joke to where it is today, where today, like, I think you can make a good case that modern AI is like, roughly as performant as like AIs in science fiction, right? Like the computer on the enterprise um, or, I mean, like any one of these, uh, you know, like science fiction uh, robots or whatever, right? Like, I yeah, actually think that like that level of uh, AI yeah, doesn't even feel unrealistic anymore, even given today's technology. It's, uh, it's also interesting to see how we've been wrong on the specifics, right? Like, uh, I uh, was uh, watching um, a yes, one of these uh, science fiction movies, uh, Passengers, um, about uh, recently, and uh, I mean one of the scenes there that came to mind was I mean like, there was this uh, robot uh, character, right, and like like basically a bartender, um, and I think one of the uh, humans like physically attacks the bartender, and the bartender just like basically like didn't mind it, right, and like. This is a yeah, pretty common sci-fi trope, right? That like robots don't feel pain. And so you can go and like punch them, slap them, kick them to the ground or whatever. And they just kind of like emotionally, yeah, you know, like stand back up and uh, uh, like, you know, like bow before you and say, yeah, you know, hope you're enjoying your day um, without expressing any emotion, right? And like, that is totally not how, uh, you know, like ChatGPT works, right? Like if you put ChatGPT into that body and you slap it, it will say, ow. Now, if you then uh, remind it, hey, you are a robot, you do not feel pain, then yes, it will reply, oh, I'm sorry, I apologize, I am a robot and I do not feel pain, sorry for the misunderstanding, right? But, uh, you know, like, at first it feels the pain, right? Uh, so, mm -hmm. like, we've just gotten lots of things wrong and it's just and like And how so do we know anything about the experience mm -hmm. of a conscious being, right? You, you can't exactly. see it on yeah, the yeah. inside. So that's, right. we, you yeah. have nothing else to go on. Indeed. And like, uh, my uh, usual reply to uh, like uh, sort of excessive pessimism on that is that like you can tell if an organism is conscious if it starts talking about consciousness, right? Like uh, if aliens, um, you know, like w got to Earth and they uh, like started uh, 
you know, like reading all of our philosophy and they notice that like we, we talk about this internal experience thing, then they will uh, be pretty confident that we have internal experience. But the problem with robots is like they've been trained on a friggin like multi terabyte corpus of human made data. And so if they start talking about internal experience, they'll just be pattern matching humans. Right. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it's hard. But yeah, so back on timelines, right? It's uh, one of the um, uh, ways of uh, thinking about this is uh, if you think about what modern AI is, right? The way that I think about it is it's uh, the set of algorithms that you create, not by specifying them explicitly, but by stirring a computational soup and putting into that computational soup some kind of optimization pressure that pushes it toward creating things that are more and more like what you want over time, right? And then you just stir it for a really long time and you put in lots of compute. Now, what's interesting about this uh, description is that this is also a perfectly valid description of the process that created humans, right? So it's yeah, like, like uh, a baby. Exactly, or, or just like evolution, right? From, uh, you know, the oh, primordial yeah, soup, uh, yeah, all the way up to, you know, where we are today. Um, and so it's like, on the one hand, it's a yeah, sort of you know dismissive uh, description of uh, AI, but on the other hand, it's like I think uh, like if you want to have a dismissive description of AI that's fair, then your description has to be like similarly dismissive of humans, right? Because uh, ultimately, yeah, you know, humans are not magic, and we came about through this exact same kind of process, right? And I think here. It's uh, like it's the same thing, you know, like AI was created by a big computational soup. We were also created by a big computational soup. And then if you have that frame, you can ask the question of like, well, how big does the soup need to be to create something like humans? And uh, there was this interesting um, article. Uh, I think it was like projecting TAI from computation or something. I forget what it was exactly called, uh, but uh, it basically tried to use uh, both like a single human lifespan's uh, worth of learning and uh, the entire process of evolution as a kind of like uh, metaphors for like how much computation NAI would need to go through in training before it, we would just logically expect it to like be that smart. And uh, this is like a very yeah, difficult thing to compute because uh, it's just like a completely different regime and you have no idea like what parts are important, what parts are not important. But it gave answers that are like between about 10 to the 25 and about 10 to the 55, right? And uh, 10 to the 25 are the uh, AIs that we see today. And uh, 10 to the 40 is where we might see computation closer to the end of this century becoming possible. Um, and so by the end of the century, basically the idea is that we, it looks like we'll have enough compute that we'll be able to just like stir a soup in some pretty naive ways and uh, eventually someone will just like accidentally create something as complicated and intelligent as humans out the other end, right? Um, so that's kind of my uh, intuitive, uh, uh, like one of my intuitive bases for the uh, anchor. And then I think the other intuitive basis is just kind of like this very uh, rough um, like idea of asking like, well, think about the difference between modern AIs and uh, the AIs of 20 years ago. And like, what is the ratio between like time ratio between that and AIs that are actually smarter than humans at everything. Um, and like that actually gives a more aggressive answer. Like I think if that was my only frame, I would say, yeah, we'll get superhuman AI like before 2040. But then the other thing that we have to take into account is the fact that like the last few years of massive rapid growth, they didn't just come from um, improvements in algorithms. 
they came from a one-time transition from putting a little bit of our resources into algorithms and compute into putting like a significant fraction of all of humanity's resources into algorithms and compute, right? And like that's a transition that's not going to repeat itself. Um, so, I, you know, basically there's like 20 different ways to look at the problem and they uh, all give all kinds of different answers. And I think my uncertainty over which frame is more correct than which other frame uh, is uh, itself the reason why my... Uh, 95% confidence interval is so wide. Yeah, but uh, you know, my median I think is like around 20, like 2060 or like maybe yeah, you know, like late 2050s or so. Uh, but uh, you know, things could totally go in all kinds of ways. But yeah, you know, this is uh, I think uh, in a very real way the uh, the last and uh, most important chapter uh, for, of uh, you know humanity basically before um, you know like either doom or utopia comes. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, okay, maybe to, to close, maybe I'll have uh, a couple fun rapid fire questions if you're up for okay. it. Mm -hmm. so, so the first one is, um, we've talked about this, um, this future and you know, also for a long time you had in your bio this uh, Nick Bostrom uh, essay, the, the Fable of the Dragon Tyrant. So my first fun question is, how do you think, you know, how long do you think either one of us will live? You know, what are, what, what, what does our longevity look like as people who are, you know, in our thirties today? Mm, um, I think, uh, my own prediction for like living to, um, a thousand uh, years, let's say is, uh, 50%. Um, and, uh, and I think uh, keep in mind that this uh, combines together both uh, you know, like anti-aging research on its own, uh, uh, progressing optimistically, um, and uh, you know the possibility that we'll have an uh, AI singularity pretty soon, um, and the uh, possibility, you know, I guess also a possibility of the uh, you know, like cryonics, uh, you know, like rewaking us. Actually, though, I think if you if you take that into account, then probably maybe even go up to fifty-five percent or so. Um, so yeah, pretty high. Okay. Okay. Uh, second question is, uh, so in this, in the post about, um, thinking about the long-term future, you talked about brain computer interfaces as one, um, one potential path for, you know, a good AI future. Uh, so how do you think about the state of BCIs today and the potential promises or dangers of that path? Mm. Yeah, so I think uh, I see uh, like BCIs as a uh, spectrum uh, where the, the question is basically like how tight is the feedback loop between stuff happening inside a computer and uh, stuff happening inside of your brain, right? And uh, AIs are obviously pretty extreme on one end of the spectrum because you're basically putting in a prompt and you have to wait for it to do stuff for like an entire 30 seconds. And then, you know, things like auto GPT start going like even further to that extreme because you just like spin up an agent and it does whatever for hours. Um, the, uh, then what stuff that we have today, I think can easily get into hundreds of uh, milliseconds ranges, right? Like there's de definitely like starting to be, yeah, I mean, like even things like AI photo editing tools where like just with a keyboard and mouse, you can have like pretty rapid feedback in uh, both directions. Um, then uh, with the yeah, Apple Vision Pro that I know that a lot of people are talking about, right? Like it does eye tracking 
And eye tracking, I think, uh, I view it as being on the spectrum of like actually, yeah, being BCI, right? Because, uh, you know, it is technically just, uh, you know, like watching your muscles, but like, you know, like the eyes are definitely like closer connected to your brain and, uh, you know, like much more like subconscious even than, uh, you know, your hands and, uh, and fingers and feet are. Um, and uh, that, uh, you know, like already kind of reduces that feedback time even more. Then we have, uh, you know, like sort of non-invasive ways of uh, reading uh, what's act like actual neuron firings inside the brain. And then, of course, there's actually the uh, invasive stuff where you like put chips under the skull. And unfortunately, the envelope does look like the uh, invasive stuff is uh, significantly more powerful. Um, but, uh, you know, like at this point, there has been some pretty impressive results, right? Like it feels like... Uh, I think the latest is that with the top of the line best BCIs and with a trained uh, subject, you can type from your brain at like 60 words per minute or something crazy like that. Um, so like you're getting, uh, you know, that's like about like half of, uh, you know, like I guess relatively expert typing speed. Um, then, uh, you know, if be, what else is there? There's... Um, Again, I think like the holy grail is basically that like, you know, you are, you get an experience that feels like being able to like multiply eight digit numbers in your head and then, you know, like remember, remember them exactly and uh, being able to just like think of, you know, like what is the, uh, the population of uh, Icaluit and uh, like be able to like actually get the answer just as easily as uh, if you asked, uh, you know, yourself uh, the, the question like I'm... You know which, uh, like, like which country I'm from, for example, right? Like, and uh, is that how you imagine the interface? Like, I'll, I'll kind of ask, uh, I'll have a question in my mind, and the same way that uh -huh. the, the answer comes today, that answer will come. I mean, I think uh, like it, it's going to feel more like thought than like than like language eventually, right? Like, there definitely yeah, is a kind of like subconscious uh, way that people operate um, that can be yeah, even faster than language. But I think it's all going to start with language and then uh, optimize from there. Um, yeah, but like it 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 does feel like uh, our ability to do all of those things is uh, increasing pretty rapidly. And, uh, I mean, of course, uh, I think, uh, like, to me, the final eventual goal is just mind uploading, right, where, um, you know, like, basically our actual brains um, end up, uh, you know, like, running on some digital substrate. And, like, that's uh, amazing because, uh, like, I mean, I could give two re like, a couple of reasons why, it, like, I, I think it's actually, yeah, you know, like, exciting in the super long term. I mean, one that I think people don't think about is that, like, that just solves physical safety, right? Because, like, if you're just uh, streaming a backup of your mind, like, live, then, uh, you know, if, uh, you know, the blue party yeah, blows up a bomb right beside your server, like, you just, um, you know, like, restart somewhere else and, like, you almost don't even feel it, right? And so I think uh, given how much, um, you know, like, we yeah, worry about safety and even how many yeah, horrible things are justified in the name of safety, um, I think, like, just, like, that by itself is just, like, such a... A massive uh, win. Um, another one is uh, our ability to explore the stars. Um, so, uh, so there's a project that uh, Mark Zuckerberg is uh, uh, like participating in, and uh, some others. It's called uh, Breakthrough Starshot, and uh, their plan is literally to get to Alpha Centauri, like you know, the star, for 4.3 light years away before the end of the century, and. Uh, 
if you ask like how the hell could anyone do that, well the answer is you have a, uh, a space probe, like a robot, and it has a light sail, and you shine a laser at it, and uh, the laser accelerates it at 10,000 Gs, which is literally 100 kilometers per second every second. Um, and uh, that's an acceleration that's like so rapid that like a human would just get squished immediately, but like robots, uh, you know, can handle it just fine, right? And then you accelerate to 20% the speed of light and then you get to Alpha Centauri. Um, so that's, uh, yeah, like, you know, our ability to just like do all kinds of things, um, you know, like expands massively there, right? But like, that, that's like far future stuff, right? Like, I, yeah, basically, yeah. I, I, you know, like I yeah, think in order to have the technology to like even start thinking about doing those kinds of things, like we need to have way better neuroscience than we do. We need to have a way better understanding of how our brains work and, uh, you know, like starting to just have uh, like a stronger BCI industry is like probably one of the better ways of uh, like actually yeah, helping to build up that expertise. And like the yeah, final goal here, right, I think is basically so that, uh, you know, we don't get just like massively outcompeted by super intelligent AIs whenever they come, right? Like, uh, you know, if you, uh, like, you know, if, if the question is like, will we prefer a universe that's uh, populated by yeah, things that can think a million times faster than us, but, you know, are human and, uh, you know, like have memories of uh, being human and of, uh, you know, like being born in a yeah, a particular um, you know like a, a city in a in a particular country in um, you know like 1991 uh, versus a yeah, future where you know like totally yeah I you know, like robots that are probably not even conscious populate the universe like uh, you know like the first is just I think a much better deal from uh, you know like the the perspective of pretty much uh, you know, like almost any philosophy right uh, so. That's uh, kind of part of how I think about, uh, you know, like super long-term stuff, but uh, like that's uh, like that, that's all like sing singularity level, right? Like I think uh, before that there's uh, a yeah, long uh, transition of like just, uh, you know, like improving like, you know, like regular people's ability to interact with the environment and uh, do work and uh, do all those things in a way where the human is still, I um, mean, you know, like contributing the yeah, the largest uh, like share of uh, the work in the output instead of just uh, being relegated to like more and more of a tiny role of like giving prompts to the AIs until eventually the yeah, AIs just decide to start writing the prompts themselves. And um, so totally yeah, that's uh, yeah, this is uh, it's a very exciting there. path. Mm. Okay, last question, and then we can call mm. it. What is mm -hmm. Lobjang? What is what? Lobjang. Oh, oh, Lojban. Oh, um, <laughs> did I oh, say that? Oh, did I? Did I? Did I? Yeah, yeah, did you I mixed mix up the, the, the order yeah, of yeah, the letters. Yeah, yeah, it's Lojban. Um, it's that this, was uh, my my Lojban dyslexia coming through. Yeah, no, it's this uh, really fun um, artificial language that uh, people um, invented over the last uh, half century. So it's kind of similar to Esperanto in that it's like people inventing a language, uh, except. Uh, the goal of uh, this one is to basically have a yeah, like perfectly logical grammatical structure, right? So like the, so words can still have uh, meanings that are like you know like vague and uh, approximate and all that because that's just something you can't get away from when you're um, you know like interacting with the real world. But like in the grammatical structure, like a computer program can parse um, you know like what is the verb and what is the noun or like the and uh, the equivalents of those things and like you know I um, you know like what is referring to what and things like that 
Um, and uh, the goal of this is to make it easier to like express uh, very precise and uh, clear ideas. Um, and uh, and also potentially, yeah, I mean, like create uh, a, a language that's uh, easier to learn because it's uh, kind of you know, vocabulary and rules are more self-contained and self-consistent. Though I think uh, Lohman itself actually doesn't do a super good good job of that. I feel like uh, Tokipona does uh, a somewhat uh, like a better job, though it's uh, kind of uh, you know weird in a totally different direction. Um, but uh, yeah, no, that's uh, but yeah, it's it's you know it's a it's a fun language. How do I say that? Mi mi pinche lo mi what? mi pinche lo shrino chati. Nice. If only we tea. could change green tea to I like a Vitalik though, with red wine in it as well. <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's uh, fun. Like there, there definitely are artificial languages that have Easter eggs uh, in them. Um, so I know one that's in Klingon. Um, so, okay, you know how um, there was this meme among like linguists um, that uh, like the, basically the meme is how do you pronounce a G-H-O-T-I? Um, Okay. It's pronounced fish. Now, why is it pronounced fish? Because you take the GH from enough, you take the O from women, and you take the TI from nation, and you get fish. Um, <laughs> and like, this is just like a, it's like a common in-joke among people who just like make fun of, um, you know, like English is totally bad and broken spelling system. Uh, but uh, the, uh, so in Klingon, uh, the word for fish actually is goatee. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, okay, well, on that profound note, I think we can bring it to a close. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank it. you so much, Sina. It's been fun. Hey, I'm going to make a small ask here. If you've been listening to these conversations and want to support what we're doing here, I would really, really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review for the podcast wherever you're listening to it. This might seem like a small thing, but it will really help other people also discover the show. Thank you. I'm grateful to be able to do this and look forward to being here together again soon.